on that uh, happy fungi note, do you guys know about the 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 fungi joke? No, I what's that? Oh no, no, I could, I, I think I've already got a vision of it. Go on. <laughs> so yeah, so why 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 did the mushroom oh, no. go to the party? Because he was a fun guy. <laughs> this is the fire these times, and I'm your host, Julia Yub. Welcome everyone to the Fire These Times. I'm your host Joey Ayub, and today we're going to have two returning guests, uh, Musa Kwonga and Justin Salhani, to talk about a topic that I feel a lot of our listenership would be interested in, probably have been thinking about way too much if you're anything like me, which is your relationship to social media. And this is obviously prompted uh, in large part by the um, um, I'm going to call it nervous breakdown uh, of Twitter under the quote-unquote leadership of uh, he who shall not be named. That has prompted a lot of folks, including myself, to start rethinking, or at least if we stopped thinking about it for some time, we started rethinking about it, which has been my case. Thinking our relationship, rethinking our relationship to Twitter, to social media more broadly, the bigger platforms, the smaller platforms, all of that stuff, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's both, whether it's neither, etc., etc. And I wanted to have two friends on, Musa and Justin, um, because we are in this group on Signal and we've been talking about it a lot and we've used it a lot, right? Like we use social media a lot. Uh, it's kind of central or at least um, instrumental, I guess we would say, to our line of work. And whatever happens to it has deep implications, clearly, to what we do, um, good and bad. So uh, as a way of intro, kind of just, of course, introduce yourselves, uh, names, pronouns, whatever you want to use, what you do, what you come from, that's all, whatever, that sort of thing. And also as kind of a first question, can you describe your relationship to social media, um, whether it has changed over the years, you know, that sort of thing, to sort of get us kick-started in any case um and i guess musa you can go first and then justin and we'll just take it from there after that sure um so uh my name is musa okwonga i'm a writer and podcast host based in berlin uh, and can i just say it's really exciting to be doing this podcast with three different cities it feels like super like so european you know geneva paris berlin um we're international my relationship yeah, so international. Oh my goodness, fruitless consultants. Um, what my relationship with social media, I would suppose, is I'm probably slightly hooked on Twitter because I'm on it a lot, um, and Instagram, and I'm also quite stubborn about my use of Twitter in the sense that there's so much community there, and it, there's a you can there's a uniqueness to it in terms of its reach. The international reach of Twitter is something that I don't see replicated quickly in other platforms, um, and it's a thing that's been invaluable in terms of ironically enough because of who it's now owned by twitter was an incredible way of getting past gatekeepers in its early years and i still think that despite well we're getting to the conversation now but despite its current great problems which may even be fatal one day it still has a lot of value at this point um so yeah that's my relationship with social media i'm justin salhani i'm a writer and journalist based in paris and I, yeah, describing my relationship to social media is difficult. Um, I think like Musa, I'm, I'm on Twitter more than I should be. It's become kind of a reflex to check. I deleted the app years ago, but it's on the browser. And every once in a while, I try to convince myself that I'm signing out of the browser. <laughs> um, but, you know, you sign back in pretty quickly because, again, it has this amazing capacity to 
connect you to things all over the world. Um, it's your curated feed that tells you what's happening about all the things you care about with a lot of people that you find interesting. I think for a long time, it was this place where you could go to get really interesting, considered thoughts and takes on so many different things. Over time, I think it's become more tired. It's become um, definitely more performative in a lot of instances. I, I agree with Musa that there's still a lot of, of value there. Um, but I find myself feeling less and less. I mean, I've taken years because I just felt that at times it got overwhelming and wasn't good for, for mental health. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Um, but I think as well that um, generally speaking, more and more when I sign into Twitter now, um, I feel more negative personally than I than I did at any point in the in the past. Um, so I'm interested to to explore that. Um, have yeah, I mean we've talked about this a lot in our group chat, and I've got a lot of thoughts going forward. So um, so yeah, let's kick it off. Awesome, thank you both. Um, I will try and describe my relationship. Uh, I used to be very active on Facebook back in the day when it was slightly more innocent, I guess. Um, and I, I don't remember when I quit, whether it was 2016 or 2017, but around that time, I remember very clearly it was around the fall of Aleppo. So that was end of 2016. And I deleted not that long after, so I probably 2017. And, um, the reason for deletion doesn't actually matter as much. It's going to be part of this conversation. But around the same time, I already had a Twitter account, but it was kind of inactive. And around the same time is when I then became very active on Twitter. And I I was a, what's the term? Power user, super user, active, whatever. Like I used it a lot. I definitely used it a lot. And that continued um, the uprising in Lebanon. I was basically live tweeting it um as a as a journalist i guess or at least as a witness and in 2020 2021 pandemic explosions in lebanon crisis all of that stuff also use twitter a lot and of course um between things in palestine and things in ukraine and things in syria and whatnot twitter has often been um not necessarily the, the only go-to source but at least the fastest one so it's often like where i get the initial info and then if needed, do further research and so on. Up until roughly last year when I started cutting down and uh, I didn't tweet this year except like once or twice. And I deleted it, as I said, like a couple of days ago. Um, we're recording this on August 2nd, 2023. So why does any of this matter? I mean, it's it's very interesting in, in, in some sense, the fact that this is even a conversation is in and of itself like worthy of a conversation because at the end of the day, it's just you're just a user on a platform right like at, at the very basic level but of course that's not that's not why it matters i also found on twitter especially and to a lesser extent um instagram a if at least what i would call like a proto community in the sense that or proto communities in the sense that it's a lot of folks that are very interesting. I met, I met the two of you there right at least i first heard of you there lots of folks are interesting and then I find out about them through Twitter and then I reach out to them and then we take it off Twitter. And then after some time, a community can be formed. So it's like it, it forms, it allows the basis for one, at least it facilitates uh, the creation of one. Um, and that's for other folks, that's uh, Facebook, other folks, that's Instagram, of course, uh, YouTube to some extent. And TikTok is a bit more complicated because it, it has a different um way of operating. But anyway, I'm sure for some folks, it's, it's TikTok. My um, problems with social media has 
is almost as old as my usage of social media. Some of it is kind of common things like there's addiction. It's, it's very clear that at some point I did, I was addicted and I was in denial about it essentially, uh, which is worse than being just addicted, I guess. And that the, the concerns that kind of started, I'm, I'm going to say it became more and I became more and more worried about Twitter and Facebook, because those, those were the two that I was using the most, and Instagram to some extent, it's owned by Facebook anyway. When I started seeing how dependent we became as activists, journalists, writers, how formative or how crucial uh, social media has been in numerous uprisings, which is obviously a good thing, because I want more uprisings in situations of inequality and injustice. But there is the downside, which is then when, what happens when a single thing on that platform changes? What happens when the algorithm is modified and we have no way of knowing because there's zero transparency? Um, what happens to our data? Of course, all of that stuff. But what happens specifically to that protest movement? Let's say if it, the people who were taking part in street action or whatever were uh, largely depending on those platforms for that, like what happens the day after? What happens after a Musk takeover? What happens after inshittification, which I'm going to talk about as a concept, like things getting shittier um, as as kind of par for the course in any monopoly. And that's kind of, I got so exhausted by it that, no, let me put it this way. I got both very exhausted by it, but also very concerned at seeing what would happen if I leave. Not to me necessarily, although there, that's part of it. But what happens to a movement if a lot of the people in that movement are unable to communicate in the same way using that same platform? Because ultimately, it's not ours. It feels like it should be. It feels like it should be the platform of the people using it. But as we saw with like just a single man buying it overnight, uh, almost, it's not. And so what happens then? What happens to movements? What happens to community? What happens to all of that? I try to anticipate the kind of the worst, um, how do you say this? I tried to anticipate a bit of the worst, essentially, when it came to Twitter long before Musk took over by having lots of folks that I know asking them, hey, what's your email? What's your uh, signal number or whatever? And let's just chat over there. And I would say like it, one of my better ideas because that that at least prevented me from constantly having to depend on this one platform. Anyway, that's my initial um, um, more or less formed um, thoughts on the matter. I want to have something much more in depth at some point, maybe in written format as well, because I'm generally still very concerned, even though like I deleted my personal Twitter, like, I still have the, the, the Fire These Times one, but I'm not really using it. I'm still very concerned about how the platforms are evolving, regardless of whether I am individually on them or not, because I think at this point, it's undeniable that Twitter, for example, or uh, the other platforms have an impact on our world in the sense that mm. like we, we may not be on it, but what happens on it may have an impact on us regardless. And that's something that um, concerns me, obviously. Can I throw in this? That's all really interesting. And I, I want to throw in that a reference to that report that came out a few days ago that the current owner of Twitter was very angry about, which was talking about the failure to censor abuse of language. So I think something like 99% of messages that were sent were not moderated like days after they'd been sent. And 
the head of the center that commissioned the research basically said, I think uh, Imran something, I'm not sure, Imran Khan, I think, the head of the center said, decades of progress are being rolled back, like decades. One person can take over a social media platform and just by boosting through algorithms, hateful language, you can push society back. And this is the frightening thing about Twitter, like whether you're on it, whether you're not, is that regardless of whether you're on it or not, that is happening to society through Twitter. That's the frightening thing. It's a thing where there are people that aren't on social media who don't touch it and have never been on it. And their lives are being affected fundamentally by something they never signed up to or never interested in, actively avoided. It's a bit like, I don't know, it's a bit like climate change, actually. It's like nations that have never polluted and they're seeing sea level rises and going, hang on a minute, we never emitted anything, but this stuff is coming to our doorstep. And I suppose I do see Twitter a bit like the climate, like whether we want to participate in it or not, it's shaping our world in ways that are quite frightening. And when I saw that report come out, it kind of solidified it for me. It was like, wow, this is, um, we're in a world that's changing so quickly and so dangerously. And even again, because of lack of transparency, even we can't quantify how more dangerous it's becoming. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I want to take maybe a second to address social media at its best and at its worst. And at its worst, you know, what we're seeing what's happening with Twitter now, of course, but we can also go back a ways and see what happened with Facebook in terms of um, the actual damage it's, it had leading to potential contributing to genocides in places like Myanmar um, mm. and the, the kind of violence and how quick false information can spread around and, and hate information can spread around and the, the, the real world damage it can have. I think, I think at its best, you know, Joe, you mentioned, uh, you know, what people call the Arab Spring, um, early organizations, revolutions that were, you know, social media was a place to organize and spread kind of these messages that, that were popular sentiment that maybe wasn't um, expressed at a mass scale before. Uh, sometimes I think at its best, you know, I've, I've thought about this a bit and I think if you think about um, what what like Twitter in particular was for a lot of us, right? If you go back to the days of like Abu Nawas in Baghdad or or Mutanabi, um, or you talk about like Paris in the the forties and fifties and the kind of the, the post uh, World War II period where you had guys like Camus and Sartre and these other intellectuals gathering in cafes to meet. I mean, Twitter was essentially the intellectual cafe for for our generation. It's where all the minds could get together no matter where they were located in the world and express and share and engage in, in kind of good faith argument for a while. Um, I don't think that's the case anymore. And so I've been trying to think about where is the new place, right? And I think you have, the, you know, the, the great tech minds of our generation are probably all in San Francisco that I think connects to this greater conversation. Um, but also the, the environment there is lacking a few other things, which is why we're seeing social media develop the way that we're seeing it. Um, mm. But I also wonder about, you know, in the terms of, for me, social media at its best, again, was a lot about community. And so the question is, where are these communities going? How are these communities manifest and reshape? Um, but to touch really quickly, again, on social media at its worst, um, governments and particularly autocratic governments have learned from the early good days of social media. And they've co-opted all this. They know how to work with these companies. They have direct lines to these sort of things. And I remember the, the first time I learned about this was probably late 2014, because I had just done, uh, I just produced um, a, a documentary on the Islamic State in Lebanon. And I had an advisor to somebody in the foreign ministry tell me that in the meeting, he showed clips of this documentary. 
to um, a group of Arab states and and um, and partners and allies. And included in that meeting was Twitter. And I believe he said Google or some, it was some other massive social media. And it was the first time I had heard that these mass level um, social media companies, digital companies are involved in what are essentially like national security or international security discussions. Um, so these are big players. These are big actors. It's kind of inevitable at some point that these companies are going to be co-opted and, uh, and the bigger powers are going to learn how to do this. So I think one of the questions, you know, I have going forward is how do we as writers, as journalists, as people who are fighting for um, liberation, are fighting for justice and care about these issues, where where's the new places where we can spread our messages, where we can learn from each other also in good faith? Because I think honestly, um, and this is the last thing I'll say, mm. you know, Twitter used to be a space where I would sign on to look for your guys' takes and the takes of other of other people and share my own and kind of wait for a good faith interaction to see if I could grow my learning from something. I think now we all go in with the defensive. We're just waiting for the trolls to come as well as the engagement and the interaction is way less than it used to be. So I used to put something out and I might have a few friends kind of engage with me and we'd shape each other's thinkings or share each other's work. And now it feels like we're all one on the defensive and two way less likely to click, way less likely to engage. We kind of scroll, right? And I don't know when it hit me that I, that I engage less than I used to. Um, but I think this is something that I've talked with other people about as well. And that's, that's become universal. So behavior is different. Uh, community is different. Everything's a bit worse. Um, mm. Governments have taken over. So I get, so yeah, where, where is the new, where is the next, uh, where is the next space? And is that online? Are these, will this be through social media companies? Mm. Okay. First of all, that's a brilliant contribution. Like I just, I was like, and there's weird, there's weird, it's like being a spoken word gig, but you're clicking every few seconds <laughs> in acknowledgement. Um, that was so good. I'm going to digest that. Joey, do you have anything jumping on? Sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, you mentioned San Francisco, Justin, and that's one of my concerns. The fact that it's all largely US centric. Now with TikTok, it's slightly different, but still, even then, uh, there is a huge US component. Uh, the fact that the, a potential TikTok ban of some kind in the US will be so significant, obviously, uh, speaks to that. Um, it worries me because I, I started realizing at some point, as I say, I got quite obsessed uh, with social media, using social media, and also more broadly, like, oh, digital minimalism, am I too much on it? Am I not? Probably I thought about it much more than I was on it at some point. And part of that is because Whenever you would read reports, or most of the time, when you would read reports about social media and they talk about users and they talk about, uh, you know, 70% doing this or whatever, they often are talking about Americans. And mm. they, they, it's almost taken for granted that a non-descriptive person, someone who is just a neutral person, is an American in those, in those reports. And you can kind of see this in how the policies are shaped in the first place. The fact that ultimately, uh, most of what's driving currently, um, the intratification of Twitter, um, is, you know, uh, uh, bipartisan politics in the U S 
like the far right basically being pissed off that trans people are humans, the mosque being wanting to be, I don't know, at the center of all attention, some trolling happening and then becoming news on Fox News and literally trolling happening on Twitter in order to appear on Fox News, in order to then trend on Twitter, in order to then appear on Fox News again, because that creates a closed loop of, you know, uh, well, people are talking about this, even though it's the same people talking about it, essentially. And that that's very worrying for me like it i kind of really realized at some point that even subconsciously even when i wasn't Mm. making a very conscious effort to think so i was catering at least my message or at least framing my message in a way that would be most understandable to americans much more so than uh other angry even if we stick just to the english language Mm. um that, that that was very clear at some point and that worries me it worries me to the extent that I'm not that special on Twitter. I, I'm, I, I generally see myself as many people are like me and I like that. That's part of why I enjoyed being on Twitter. And so if it was affecting me in this way, surely it would affect other folks in this way. And of course, surely enough, that, that was the case. And that, that concerns me. I'm going to repeat the word concern way too many times in this episode. But that's something that I'm you, genuinely... You can't, you, can't, you can't say that word enough. <laughs> you it, can't it, say it, that word enough, trust me. Carry on. No, no, sorry, sorry. Yeah. No, no, they're just that. Like, at the end of the day, a, pl- a place like Twitter feels like a public square, but factually mm. it isn't. Like, it's a it's private not. corporation owned literally by a single man right now. And... The fact that it still kind of has that function as a as a public platform, at least in the eyes of many, even if, as Justin says, like maybe most of us are agreeing or maybe begrudgingly agreeing that it's slowly fading out and kind of would just like it's amazing. I would you know I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot in the end people usually say, well, where can people find you? And, you know, plug your pluggables or whatever. And you would say, oh, you can find me on Twitter at whatever. You can find me on Instagram at whatever. And so many of the people now who say, you can find me on Twitter at whatever, kind of always add the caveat, like, for how however long Twitter is going to last. Or I'm trying to reduce my my presence on Twitter, but I'm still there for now. If you, you know, it's almost like everyone's, uh, everyone's almost like there's this feeling that, well, we know it's not going to last. We don't know when, of course. And I wonder if part of it is like, you know, it's a whole car crash thing. Like you can't get your eyes... You can't, you can't get rid of, you, you have to look at what's happening in front of me if there's a burning building because there's a fucking burning building. How can you not look? And mm. it's that thing. And anyway, yeah, whatever. Go, Musa. <laughs> so. No, 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 no. We can, and I think like, feel free everyone just to, ju- to jump in at any point with what any of us are saying because I really don't have, I mean, I, I have to almost give you both compliments because your thoughts on this are so much more clearly articulated than mine like it's so hard for me to even say how i feel so let me just say where i come from as a personal standpoint like right now i'm living in berlin right and obviously berlin in germany where the far right vote in terms of the polls has doubled in a year from i was it was 10.3 percent in 2021 it was 10 and a half percent or thereabouts um in june now it's at 22 the far right vote has doubled in a year i mean that's the biggest growth i think we've seen in a far right maybe in in Europe, right, in in that space of time. And why is this relevant to Twitter? And this is the analogy I drew last night with a friend I was chatting to, um, a fellow writer. I was like, well, the far right is growing so quickly here. It's made me concerned about the future of Germany and my future in Germany. How much longer do I stay in Germany? Just as the 
the takeover of Twitter by that individual um, really led to a surge in a far right presence and an influence. So I almost feel in both contexts, both online and both in my personal life, I feel like the grumpy African uncle in the, na- in, the na- in the neighborhood that's slowly turning Nazi, who's like, hang on a minute, I've built community in this neighborhood and I'm not going till I absolutely have to. And that's ultimately how I feel in both contexts, because I was looking around going, look, if not Berlin, then where? If not Twitter, then where? And I totally understand why people would leave Berlin for value of safety, need of safety. And I think it's about, and again, another analogy with like climate, like the rising sea levels of fascism, and the rising sea levels of of um, far-right algorithms, all the rest of it. And some of us are going to go elsewhere and organize. And for me, I'm just like, this is where I'm going to make my stand. As strange as that sounds, I think that's going to be it for me because I just won't, if, if I leave Berlin, if I leave Germany before my time, I'll be heartbroken because I think of the nights out I have with my friends, the people I meet in incredible situations and environments. And if I leave, I'm giving the fascists that. I'm giving them the joy of waking up in the morning, connecting with people in the town that they've taken over because of their cruelty. If I leave social media, this is my own judgment, what I've built and who I am on social media. If I leave, I leave that place of joy. So a few days ago, I posted a pride video. I was in um, Berlin and I had this euphoric moment. Um, I'm not sure whether or not it was assisted by, no, no, I'm joking. Um, I had a euphoric moment, a completely naturally occurring euphoric moment at this pride march in Berlin. I thought I had a moment of, um, realization i thought this is why queer pride is so powerful because the love that we have as queer people for others and for ourselves is based entirely on love and fascism is only an imitation of real love fascism has elements that you might regard as beautiful the love for classical architecture the love of countryside but fundamentally fascism is a love based upon hatred because it's still based on a rejection of modernity a rejection of the urban space and all the rest of it and why do i mention all this in relation to twitter and social media it's because if we are in these spaces, whether it's Berlin, which is increasingly racist, or within, um, we're on social media, Twitter, increasingly prejudiced, uh, slanted towards the far right. If we operate in these spaces, from a place of integrity and good faith, even as so much around us is crumbling, then some, that, that's an anchor in a particular space. And one thing I've just decided to do is try and anchor myself, obviously in Germany, for better or worse, on social media, like on Twitter, for better or worse, while others go and do what they have to do elsewhere. But this is where I'm going to make my my stand, I think. Here ends the lesson, sorry. But that's my kind of reflection of where I am right now. And I'm sure six months from now, will be completely different. But anyway, that's where I am now. I, I love that for you, Musa, because as well, like for me, you are the premier Twitter user. Like, I mean that in the sense that you're somebody who's built a very large following through no sense of like, performative, easy dunk politics, you engage, you point to issues of, um, you, I mean, you point to import, important local and global issues, whether it's in Europe or whether it's outside Europe in the peripheries. Um, you highlight other activists, you highlight other journalists. Um, and so you've built your following in, in a very large following, sizable following in very good faith, which I think is very rare on Twitter. Um, and so, I, so I, I love the fact that you're not stepping away from that because I think you are the one to lead to lead that fight, and not, you know, I'll be kind of like tagging onto your coattails as you as you do that. Um, I um, honestly, to... that's can I just say before you continue, like thank you. Like one thing this group is really special at is um, you're really kind people. Like, and that is a gratitude I will never 
I just want to express gratitude for that because I don't take it for granted. So thank you. That's a beautiful thing. So I appreciate that. Sorry, carry on. Sorry. No, it's, it's well deserved. Um, I wanted to come back to uh, what Joey said about the American centrism thing as well. Because I, mem- I don't know if you guys remember, but when Musk uh, was on the precipice of like taking over, mm. he started saying all these things about they're trying to kill free speech in America. Mm. Um, and then there was this like plethora of articles that came out after that was saying, well, if we're talking about free speech, on, on an international platform like Twitter, um, you, like it's it's way too difficult to define because every country has different free speech laws, different regulations, but he's always kind of kept it where the game's at. And I think this also points to kind of like the, um, the myopia, I don't know if myopia is the right word, but kind of like this internal, uh, the way the, the, the tech sector in San Francisco sees the world their, their circles are so small, they don't have so this narciss- Narcissism, narcissism. It's, it's as if Iran and Ukraine don't exist. It's as if Syria doesn't yeah. exist. You know, Completely. This you have, you have um, military specialists telling us about whether the Ukraine counteroffensive is working or not. You have activists in, Susa- in Sudan desperately trying to raise funds for people trying to cross different borders. Like all of those things are lost in the algorithms and the tech sector, they're like, um, they're an elephant walking into a, a jungle clearing and crushing everything underfoot, crushing anthills underfoot, because they're not seeing it, because they're just, it's this this terrifying lack of awareness. They're like, um, some of these people in the tech sector, they're like, um, you know, there's those massive stretch limousines. Imagine a stretch limousine being driven by someone out of their mind on coke with tinted windows through a crowded neighborhood and it's just steam rolling over people and the music is loud, the noise reduction headphones are on and they're not seeing or hearing who they're crushing and they're not caring. They know at some point they're driving down a crowded street intoxicated, but they don't care. And actually in a funny way, that's kind of the thrill. The thrill is knowing you're crushing countless lives. That's the power of it. I really think a lot of this is a power play and it's a game and it's a joy. And when you hear some of these people speak in public, it's you see that kind of messianic seal actually. Um, yeah, as if these countries don't exist. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. There's also this, I'm, I'm trying to look for it now. I'll find it before the end of the episode. Um, but there's this, there's a certain ideology that's caught on in, um, in, in San Francisco and in these tech circles in particular. I'll come back to it a bit later. Yeah, the, the California um, ideology, I think it's called. No, there's something, there's something a bit different particular that a lot of guys yeah. like Musk, et cetera, subscribe to. I'll come, I'll come back to it. Long-termism. Um, yeah, it's long termism. That's that's actually it. Yeah, that is the one. The one where they think that it's about finding the um, the potential of of humanity, but that potential it actually looks a lot like kind of the futurism of the past. The sense of what happens with these small peripheral places in the world doesn't matter. What we need to do is give all the money to these very highly intelligent, highly whatever you know, merit people who rose by merit, whichever way they see merit. Um, it's it's a very scary ideology, in my opinion. And um, it's it's quite popular in these circles, and I think it explains a lot of what we're seeing come out of places like uh, you know these very centralized tech sectors, and why people like Musk see himself as so uh, exceptional. Um, mm. But going back to that, and 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 Joey and Musi both touched on how this affects the wider world, um, and how it's playing out kind of through American Congress in this weird way, and then spreading throughout the world, and we're seeing it in France with with things like wokeism, uh, you know, the the kind of like rally against anything that is called wokeism, which is essentially a lot of like, um, it's, it's all or nothing. It just means nothing and everything, whatever you want. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and I'm, a lot of these, a lot of these original concepts related to race and uh, and identity came out from from French or francophone scholars, uh, activists, um, thinkers, intellectuals, long time ago, and now have re come back to France, and they're saying it's an American. But anyways, and then you're seeing it as far as places like Lebanon, where now there's all these debates about rainbow cakes and and other nonsense. Um, and and I think that can I just the, pause the a point- sec and the rainbow cake. I won't. We won't get into it too much because it's too dumb. But like. It just amazed me that like this is the thing that was a thing in America 20 years ago. Uh, that was the big thing. Like, oh, I don't want to bake cake to a gay couple and shit like that. And suddenly Lebanon is now talking about it. it I don't know. I, I, I found that bizarre. Anyway, continue. It doesn't yeah. matter. So so first off, I, I want to kind of use an analogy and then I'll come back to like my greater, my greater point here. Um, I think there's an interesting analogy that people are using about nightclubs and like bars and things like that when related to social media. And how Twitter has become kind of like, for me, the analogy I'll use is like, it was my favorite bar in like my 20s and early 30s. I used to go there all the time. I'm nostalgic for it. I met a lot of friends there, built community there. And now I go back and I'm kind of like, yeah, this bar kind of sucks now. And suddenly <laughs> there's all these there's all these predominantly men uh, walking around with wristbands that, that they paid for, even though you don't have to. Um, and uh, just uh, kind uh, of uh, like... <laughs> uh. They don't get any special like drinks or anything like that. It's just all a bit worse. Um, they get to sit at thing... the big table. <laughs> I guess it's like priority yeah. boarding on a short haul flight. Exactly. Like you get on the flight. We're all like, getting there at the same time. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And then you see something like like Blue Sky, which is maybe. Have you guys ever been on vacation and you go to like you're walking around in the middle of the day and you come across this like this bar and you sit at the bar and you're like, wow, this place is really cool. I bet at night when there's a bunch of or like all my friends were here, it would be awesome. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's like 4 p.m. and you're just there for a day or two. And so you never get to see it in its pomp. I feel like that's blue sky at the moment. Um, <laughs> wow, anyway, perfect, sorry. Perfect. perfect. That, <laughs> that's a, that's like a, a segue to get back to my greater point, which is like a framework I've been thinking about for a while. which is this good faith versus bad faith framework. And I think we're seeing this globally, whereby particularly in American Congress, but also in Europe and also beyond. You have a bunch of people that are engaging in good faith and you have a bunch of people who are engaging in bad faith. And what the bad faith people tend to be doing is trying to pull the Overton window into a certain direction by any means possible. And because they know that there's always going to be centrists or liberals that will try to negotiate and they'll try to negotiate with all the, um, you know, ideas possible in the free market of ideology or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so essentially, I think what, what we're left with is this, this Overton window that increasingly is shifting rightwards because you have these people trying to negotiate somewhat in good faith, but somewhat stupidly, not able to, to identify that there are a lot of people out there acting in bad faith. Now, there are people out there who, are, who maybe have right-wing views on certain things or conservative views on certain things. There are people who do engage in good faith and will listen and will engage and will try to connect and, and, and talk to others, right, and learn and see these things. But there's a lot of people who don't care. Who are just trying to cause as much harm as possible and i think the problem is is that globally especially on places like twitter you have people like you know the the new overlord who are really buying into this thing and really in a lot of ways acting in bad faith himself mm-hmm. and so i think what's happening here is like you know there are always people who we can engage with we can discuss with we can talk to but there are some people you can't and so i think we need to apply this framework where we're able to say look these are the people who, no matter how many times you've tried to engage or show them what, what our experience is, they're not willing to engage. They're just trying to, to pull the pull, pull politics more into their direction. Yeah. Um, 
and which which happens to be hateful direction, anti-refugee, anti-queer community, anti-anti-anti. It's 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 an ideology built out of hate, right? I think that's the that's the framework I try to apply to everything. Because I'm all for sitting down with people that, with opposing viewpoints. I want to come to a consensus. I want to negotiate and agree, um, even if my politics might be more to one way than 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 others in, in a lot of things. But um, I, I do think you cannot engage with somebody who's who's operating in bad faith. So um, when we talk about social media, I think that's that's very important to keep in mind. Mm. I, if I can add, um, I would. S- Okay, I would, I, I agree. I don't actually disagree, but there is one thing I would kind of just qualify or maybe add to what you said, Justin, which is that yes, a lot of it is driven by hate. Uh, that's very obvious, but a lot of it as well, maybe more of it, I'm not sure, is driven by what is usually called like conspiracy thinking. And by with that, I mean, I don't mean like specifically, you know, the whole anti-Semitic stuff, although that, that usually it often goes back, goes back to that as well. But in the sense that you, you are part, you feel like you're part of something. Um, those people on the right, I listen to a lot of cult stuff, like a lot of podcasts on cults. There's the podcast QAnon Anonymous, which is pretty good. There's Conspirituality. Uh, of course, Robert Evans does a number of those from time to time. And it's very interesting because the way they talk, one of those things with the QAnon stuff, right, is that a lot of them end up kind of cutting ties with their own families, end up kind mm. of really becoming very extreme very quickly. But they do so because they claim that they have that they are now part of a new community. That there's something there's something happening there that at the very basic level, it's almost like this desire for community for family. And by family, I just mean community. I don't mean to say like a traditional family, it could be a chosen family has essentially been hacked like this is just a way of hacking it but the algorithm has hacked it or whatever you know the for-profit incentives of big social media corporation has hacked it because it's not just hate that explains i think why the at the time the president of the most powerful nation on earth was effectively addicted to twitter why the richest man on earth essentially is addicted to twitter why he was actually willing to risk all of that to buy it uh, even though it's not profitable and whatever, there's something else going on there that's more than just, oh, I hate X, because mostly your hate doesn't, it's very difficult to be completely fueled by hate all the time. And most people mm. don't see themselves as bad people. They actually think that they are the good people. They're the good guys fighting the good fight and, you know, fighting censorship and whatever. And all of this gets muddled between mm. the, the folks who are bad faith, the folks who are good faith, the folks who don't seem to, I completely agree with you. This is especially a problem on the center liberal, uh, center left, whatever, center right as well. Not fully understanding that this whole marketplace of ideas only exists if the person opposite you is acting in good faith. It's not whether they agree with you or not, but whether they are willing to act in good faith. It's really that simple. And if they're not, it's the equivalent of saying, we have this circle of 10 people and uh, four of them hate the other six just because they're black or trans or, or whatever. And we need to just have an exchange of ideas. Hey, do you, do you support the extermination of these other people? Uh, yes, I do, but, and like, no, you, you can't start from that. This is, mm. it's, not, it's not a negotiable position. Mm. And this, this is why, or it shouldn't be in any case. And this is why I think like the fun, fundamental, the, the reason why it works so well, this Overton window being pushed towards the right, works so well on these platforms is because ultimately this is the lowest common denominator 
you 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 start with freaking out or with like do, doing a mass panic about like satanists and whatever in the 80s which was often homophobic as well because the whole groomer thing quote unquote basically mm. came back 40 years later you know you have the muslim ban and then oh, after the war on terror of course and then you have oh maybe it's mexicans now maybe it's trans people now and then they just find the next thing because it's 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 a never or it, everything ends at some point but it's a downward spiral of mm. ever increasing paranoia and mm. most people at some point get off that boat so most people who are involved in QAnon are no longer involved in QAnon and most people who are involved in Trump stuff are no longer involved in Trump stuff but what you get is a hardened base what you had is a percentage of those people who are now the true believers they are the ones that have you know there's also a sunken cost fallacy oh I've been doing this for three four five years now I'm not gonna suddenly change I'm actually gonna you know dig my feet a bit more I'm gonna actually be more and more and more extreme mm. and unfortunately the algorithm specifically on twitter but not just of course facebook is notoriously for that as well bad for that literally encourages that because that that's what's more likely at least as they understand it to drive quote-unquote engagement and that's been more or less their only their only criteria their only the only thing they really been looking at is how do we drive engagement and what does that mean engagement doesn't mean good or bad it just means engagement could be like Nazis yelling at trans people or could be uh, organizing for an uprising that is progressive or whatever. As far as the engagement ma uh, goes, uh, it doesn't matter. It's just at some point they figured that the right wing type of engagement is just significantly more active because mm. it's not as it's not as dependent on facts, quote unquote. There is the whole like, you know, shit, uh, bullshit spreads much faster than the energy required to debunk it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like one of the laws of the internet and social media i think has capitalized on that and that, mm -hmm. that definitely again to repeat that term again concerns me again like just i agree with all of that and i'm just head nodding to all of it and i'm almost thinking how to push back and i'm trying to use the analogy of the real world right to see how we push back in in terms of twitter and social media and the, long, the first thing is I don't know, because I know that countries and, countries and societies are different. I know that companies, you know, Twitter is a public space, but it's still owned by a private corporation. So it's, it's this weird thing. It's almost a unique thing where it it's a public space, but it's privately owned and it's all the rest of it, right? Yeah. Um, and also there's the fact that, you know, I could my account could be deleted tomorrow without any transparency and I could never get it back. So again, that, which is a not thing that could happen in, in real life. Um, what I would say... I'm looking at the far right growing in Germany, and it's now 22%, as I mentioned. But I also think about the fact that I was in the countryside, the German countryside, with a dear friend um, and his wife, and I conducted the wedding ceremony. And I thought to myself, it's so strange, because even at a time of rising fascism, I'm finding joy in areas that actually, if you look at the map, they're conservative areas. So almost my instinct is, this wave of fascism is coming towards us. We need to go and meet it where it is. We need to go into... The frightening places we need to go into the schools we need to go into the the debating chambers or at least plant our flag in certain places and i'm not sure what form that takes in relation to twitter and social media but i think in order to resist these narratives we have to plant a flag and i think that flag involves mm. actually i think that weirdly enough the movies coming out you look at like barbie and oppenheimer right and the the cultural phenomenon these are original screenplays these are movies made well, Barbie's an IP, but still, like these are movies with original screenplays. They're not sequels, and they're things that have come in and dominated the discourse. So maybe actually, as artists, as writers, as journalists who are spending less time on Twitter, 
our work, our work needs to be about creating the work that they can't ignore. And I've always said this, I think, before. Like, so when we're offline, doing whatever we're organizing, we have to create, whether it's protest, whether it's film, whether it's discussion places, we have to create, I call it the stones in the river. You know, if you put like a large enough stone in a shallow enough stream, the discourse will flow around the stone. Mm. So what does the stone look like? Mm. I don't think it's a viral thread on Twitter, for example, although those things have their value and I do enjoy them for reasons of dopamine. And also just, I know that the reach is getting out there stuff is, you know, being mm-hmm. candid. Mm-hmm. But what is the work we can create? What is the work we can create that makes the Overton window radically shift? Mm-hmm. And if I think about the client scientists and I see what Just Stop Oil are doing, that stuff dominates Twitter, Right. So how do we make the work? And there, there are examples of, and this is my obsession currently, because I'm working on some new creative work, working on some fiction and all the rest of it. And I'm constantly thinking, what, what are the, how do we create the conversations that are impossible to ignore? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. If I could quickly add, Justin, I know you'll probably have a lot to say now, but so there's one thing or a couple of things that, again, I agree. And it's not a, but it's more of a yes and kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think the difference with the the reason where the analogy falls short probably between social media and IRL in real life mm. is that it's the the fact that in real life you don't have something in between you don't have something in between you and the person you're talking to mm. you're talking to the person then you're talking to the person and that's it um, yeah. and there there isn't a, a mediator in between trying to game your attention essentially because mm. yeah. what what concerns me is not that good things are not built on social media. Obviously they are. That's why I've been on them for so long. And that's why I'm still on some of them and whatnot. Um, and by no means I want folks listening to this feel like they, they should feel, I don't know, good or bad for being on it or not being on it. That that's just beyond, I, I don't care. Like that's you do you kind of thing. Um, but the fact that it is mediated, the fact that effectively someone is listening, although it's not a one person, means that also it, it kind of curates a bit the way we act. And let me put, yes. put it in a very, in very concrete example. Like uh, we are organizing for a protest in Lebanon in 2019. Mm. Uh, 2015 was mostly Facebook. 2019 became Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And the fact that we're organizing, okay, we're sharing each other's tweets, each other's posts and whatnot. And this is building some kind of communication, of course, some kind of, of info space, we might say, but I'm doing this on my phone. And after doing this with the other activists and whatnot, I then spent 20, 30, maybe 80 minutes, maybe more scrolling through the phone, doing something else. That's that amount of time, just that, that very banal thing of just scrolling through your phone. If you were in a space with those other people, uh, physically, uh, even virtually, but just like virtually as we're doing it now, because we're mm. just talking to each other and there, there is no mediator in that sense. Uh, you will have to fill that space, that void with conversation with something. And that can be a bonding moment that can be a, a strategic, like actually building, creating, oh, actually, what about this? Or what about that? Because your attention is still on this thing. And that that that's the kind of the, the difference, I think the the qualitative difference, if you want, between planting a flag uh, quite literally through a pride march, for example, or pride in general, and doing so on Twitter, because it's the the better analogy, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's not just, oh, there is this physical square 
and on the one side you have like a swastika and on the other side you have a pride flag it's actually more that the square itself is not a, it's not physical it's not a square in the sense mm-hmm. that it's not somewhere that we're sitting it's actually two pairs of screens that's a pair of screens that is mediated by something else and we're trying mm. to almost trying to hack the system that is being designed by someone uh, mm. by a group of people of course for a different purpose and it's almost like there's this wave and we're, we're or not wave what's the metaphor i'm looking for it's almost like there is this thing that's moving and we're trying to be on it in order to redirect it in a certain way and sometimes Perfect. it works yes and of course, and that's when the good, the nice things that we see happens, or at least the powerful things like BLM, Me Too, um, following updates on Ukraine, whatever it may be. Um, and then, of course, the the flip side of that is when the other stuff dominates. And I think what we're seeing now is this again, this gentrification process. Which let me quickly, I've mentioned like four times. I'll quickly just say it, and then Justin, you can go, you can take over. Uh, this is from Cory Doctorow, that one of the author, uh, one of the authors I read most. He describes it as such, like, here is how platforms die. And I should say, he described this as first Amazon, but then it applies also to TikTok and Twitter and others. Facebook already went through it, basically. Here is how platforms die. First, they are good to their users because, right, you need to attract them in the first place. So it's a very nice place. It's very interesting, very dynamic, very stimulating and whatnot. So that's step one. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. So Mm -hmm. then they figure that we have to monetize this in one way or another because so we start implementing ads and so then the user experience quote unquote becomes less and less pleasant obviously but you tolerate it because it used to be 90 percent good 10 percent bad but you know it's 70 percent good 30 percent bad you 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 can still tolerate it finally they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves and this is kind of the irony is that ultimately we know now that facebook Added, uh, sorry, had this business model, still has this business model that supposedly is very good for advertisers. Like if you're an advertiser, you know, oh, you have this data. If you pay this amount, you get a million eyeballs or whatever. But we actually know that a lot of this data is faked because Facebook actually faked their numbers, quite literally invented numbers. Mm. And so what does that mean for the people paying for those business owners as well? And I don't care about the big ones. They have a lot of money to, to lose, but you have a lot of small businesses small Mm. artists and whatnot who effectively became dependent on this because there's no other game in town and amazon of course is is big for that for small retailers instagram is huge for artists and effectively that creates a sort of a i don't want to use terms that are too too strong here whatnot but there is a bit of a hostage situation you you can't if you leave you will lose you will lose money you will lose uh there is a huge cost on you and until that's resolved, until it's very easy to move, like on Mastodon, you have a user with like 200 followers. If you change your Mastodon uh, instances, as it's called, those 200 followers come with you. And you cannot do this on those other platforms. If you delete your Twitter, as I did, I had like 34,000 or something followers. That's it. They're gone. That I can't, I can't reach them anymore. There's no other way of reaching them. I can mm. do this manual thing of, you know, downloading the data and then manual, but you know, it's not the same thing and it doesn't work. Anyway. I'm going to shut up now. Justin? No, no, no. What you've said is really important. Oh, you know, so while you were talking, you radicalized me. And I literally wrote to a friend of mine <laughs> who does a lot of amazing organizing offline. Because as you were speaking, I thought, my goodness, the importance of organizing on a hyper-local level is more important than ever. Yeah, That is where impact can be had. 
So literally I just dropped a line to a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in ages, who does a lot of organizing. I was just like, do you know what? I need to grab a drink soon. Because as you were speaking, I was like, you're completely right. That face-to-face organization is ultimately what's going to change everything. Mm-hmm. If you look at the big changes that are happening right now, it is, you know, they call it uh, all Giganists, the um, grandmothers against Nazis organizing, going to far-right conferences, standing outside a group of grandmothers and basically going, we're against the far right. That has more impact than being online in a space that's heavily moderated by, you know, by, by algorithms that are completely lacking transparency. This feels like the most radical antidote is actually getting out there as far as possible, writing groups, collectives, not just yeah, signal chats, extremely useful. I mean, that those are the online spaces, the un, unmediated private spaces, whether online or offline, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, Twitter's good, don't get me wrong. Twitter's good for dissemination, but it's a secondary, it has a secondary value. It's not the primary thing. And if people think that Twitter's the arrowhead, they think that sharing a few petitions, they call it clicktivism. And that yeah. I found that a bit of a reductive phrase at first, but mm-hmm. now I see what people mean. When I see people talk about uh, online toxicity and they sort of step away from Twitter, go to a different platform, but I'm like, but what are you doing online? And you what are you doing otherwise? And you realize that some people the total extent of their engagement, and this is sound quite mean to say or judgmental, I think for a lot of people, the, the furthest extent of their, their engagement was online. I think that what happened was because we spent so much time online, the default became, I feel useful if I'm sharing stuff. I feel useful if I'm voting, but in between, I, I think people, a lot of people don't understand, and this is sound judgmental again, but I'll have to say it because I've started. I think a lot of people don't understand that like civic engagement and what that means, especially people that grew up primarily online, Civic engagement is about, as far as you can, you know, ableism notwithstanding, it's about getting out there. It's about being, if you can't get out and about physically, being in those online spaces like Signal and WhatsApp and helping to organize. It's about getting out there if you can get out there physically in those bars, in those pubs, you know, in those beer halls, because we have the fascist organizing in beer halls, we have to organize in those places too. Yeah, quite a long so history as- of fascist organizing in beer halls, I feel. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but that's actually, this is the problem. The reason why the right has been more agile, and this is actually a different conversation about sentiment versus fact. The right has done so well because the right is better at selling sentiment. Because the right, I think a lot of its messages are fundamentally disingenuous. When I say the right, I don't mean nice conservatives who believe that um, a bit less cash should be allocated here and there. Like those people I have actually good faith conversations and disagreements with. I mean, the right with the capital R, the hard right, the far right, because they are selling things that are fundamentally disingenuous, they're much more expert at selling sentiment. We have to get better at that. And I don't think that we can sell sentiment so well. Sentiment being the idea of a possible, of a better future, a future that's exciting, regard, you know, beyond a, a future beyond fact. So instead of going, oh, actually Germany needs 2 million immigrants, it doesn't need to get rid of them all. Yeah, that's true. And also those aren't vote-winning arguments, not in the age that we're in, and maybe they never have been. We need to go out there and convince people of the humanity of all people, migrants included. And I don't think we do that online. And I'm only saying this rant because as you spoke, I felt like a penny dropping and going, wow, I need to spend a lot more time organizing more of those writer's salons that I did before, more of those meetups that I did before. You know, there's a thing I did before the pandemic where I would sit down in the cafe and say, look, we're gonna have a writing clinic. And it's not going to be led by me. I'm going to turn up as a writer who's been published and talk about the number one problem I've got in my writing. It's my confessional. 
I'll spend 10 minutes tearing my own writing to pieces and then go, who else is struggling with their writing? And then everyone else piles in with their own struggles. Those spaces as community were really, really important. And I think they actually are, they're part of the antidote. They're part of this, not just the antidote, they're part of the, they're part of the progress. So thank you. I'm just saying all that as a rant because that's what you directly inspired through your own analysis. So thank you. I, I saw somebody say online a while ago that, um, do you ever notice how we used to say BRB and we don't say that anymore because we're just online all the time? Wow. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of, because you used to sign in. off. You used to actually sign off in yeah. order to sign in. Now there's no sign in. You're yeah. just on. And I, and I think this, this ties into this greater conversation, right? That like being online should supplement real life, you know, within what we're able to do, you know, mm. ably, physically, et cetera. Um, and, and I've thought a lot about this, like, what are my choices going forward? Um, and I think I, I kind of have like, there's, there's, let's say there's like a fork in the road, you know, I could either become perpetually more online and diving into these deeper and deeper niches and sub holes and stuff, um, which, which hasn't felt that good for me personally. Like there's other people who this is where they find community and stuff. And I think that's great. But for me, that's not been the thing. The other side might be like to, to stay engaged a little bit, to observe, to continue to cut, you know, monitor what's going on and, and contribute when I can but to really get into the real world more, because like you said, Musa, like these meetups are often when I get the motivation to write, something. you know, we have conversations in the group chat and then I'm emboldened to go write, you know, write a piece. Um, or even like in the past when I used to try to put some time aside to write some fiction or to just write personal reflections, it often would come through real world interactions rather than seeing something on social media. And so I think online should supplement our real lives. And it's not really been the case personally, I've thought a lot about this this question Musa, you brought up earlier about how do we affect the conversation? How can you put a big stone into you know a relatively small river? Um, and as a writer, I think it's difficult because the, the the momentum is moving away from us in a lot of ways, right? Like the new places where youth are going, where the masses are going, are places like YouTube, um, TikTok. You know, one of the most influential people in the world right now is this guy, Mr. Beast, which I don't know if either of you are familiar with. Mm -hmm. What's also crazy is the segmentation of information, right? So if you don't know Mr. Beast, go look him up and I think you'll be mind blown a bit about how somebody can have millions and millions of followers and a person of just a slightly different age group may have never heard of, of this person before. Yeah, it's like anyone above They're, 25 may not know, but anyone below 25, like 90% of the people know him. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The second, you know, it used to be, you know, when I was young and probably you guys as well, it's like if you were on the local news, you were kind of a local celebrity. Mm -hmm. What's kind of funny is, or, you know, I, I left my my last job in December last year, but I used to host a show on YouTube, and the average viewership of that show was somewhere around a million viewers, uh, not just for YouTube but across platforms. And the amazing thing about that is is I could still walk out my front door and nobody would recognize me, nobody saw my face because it was a very particular group of people in like certain locations, certain age groups. You know, I got recognized maybe three times in my life after doing two years, three years of of this show. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So the segmentation of, of information is very, is very different. Mm -hmm. So, so again, how do we affect the conversation? And I think as a writer and as a journalist, at least particularly, I'm speaking very personally now, because I think there are, I've seen a lot of my colleagues shift to TikTok, shift to YouTube and information, shift to try to become creators or influencers in this other way. And I think, you know, there, there, there is a space for that. And there is a need for that. I've, I was doing it professionally and I never felt wholly fulfilled. I think my, my way to contribute is through the written word or mm -hmm. other forms of journalism in this way. Um, 
And so one thing I've tried to do is start setting up like, uh, you know, monthly lunches where I just invite people who I find are interesting just to get together and talk and share ideas. And I'll give an anecdote where a few weeks ago I did this, uh, six people showed up and it was a pretty dynamic group. Um, and what was really interesting is actually not everyone spoke the same language. Um, so there was like one individual who, who didn't really speak any English or French. He's recently arrived from Egypt. And then there was uh, three people who didn't speak any Arabic. But somehow the conversation still flowed and there was still like a lot where people learn from each other. And, you know, there was always somebody on hand to kind of translate for the person who didn't understand or they got the vibe of what was happening. And it was really fruitful and it was really like, uh, it was really great to see people connect and also see how in our city, there's, there's this like wide array of people that you don't come into contact with all the time as well, which is, which is really nice, you know, and I think that's something that was great for social media and it's a great point too is you start to see these perspectives that you didn't really hear before maybe or you didn't have access to that your circles didn't introduce you to so um so yeah i mean i for me the the thing i've been trying to do is, is organize these get-togethers see friends in person um and i'm interested in how maybe you guys are handling this as well as you move forward you know without maybe completely abandoning the social space realizing it's important but like you said as well these are private companies these are places where governments have gotten involved and they know how to manipulate now the only place we can truly and i mean it's like the real world as well right like we can't meet up in public space like we're meeting up at private restaurants can we meet up in public spaces yeah maybe we should do meetups at the park maybe you know but then in some cities and some countries these public spaces are also being eroded this is all part of the same fight and so this hyper local organizing for me i know that this is the way that it's not something everyone can do but this is something that i want to try to to put my weight into. So I'm interested in your guys' perspective as well. Mm. It's what you said at the start, right? It's like, if it's, if it's something to supplement, like if it's supplementing, uh, even helping to organize, uh, quote unquote offline and the online aspect is not the problem, right? The, the problem is this is this mediated aspect of it. So we are online right now. And for me, it's almost the same. It's never the same, of course, but almost the same as being face to face. Uh, but like we're, we're slowly wrapping up this this conversation i think and what i would kind of add is or kind of maybe my take my final take if you want is my main concern is not um you know i like i love this um lebanese media channel called called uh megaphone um you know it uh, it's very good people should check it out they are mostly active on social media and they have a website but their most of their content goes on social media it doesn't go on their private website and what worries me is what we've been talking about. Like if so much energy is spent on catering to a very specific audience in a very specific format using graphic that works, you know, maybe better for one social media platform and not as much for another and so on and so forth. Now we can always then re say like, oh, well, I was going to say like, what happens when it collapses or it doesn't, it's not as good or whatnot. Well, maybe we can readapt and whatnot. Sure. And that is true. Like people are flexible. But not always. And especially if like your specific set of skills end up becoming only, you know, you're very good at doing Instagram stuff or whatnot. Changing is not that easy. And especially if there is a financial cost to this, then it becomes even more problematic, obviously. So for me, let me give you this very easy analogy. Like I, I attended Pride here in Geneva uh, a month ago or whatever. And that was like an insane amount of people. I didn't, I didn't expect that amount of people uh, popping up. I, th I think it was 40, 50,000, which is a lot for a small city. Um, for me, that the fact that it imagine if it was 50,000 Nazis, like the, the symbolism of that is like you would effectively feel, oh, well, 
there's going to be a third world war soon or like, oh, well, we need to leave. Like we need to physically leave. If you have this many Nazis who are comfortable enough taking over a physical space. And the fact that this is much more meaningful, the fact that you have 50,000 like queers and supporters of, of queer rights and so on is so much more meaningful than if we had like to use a stupid comparison, it's not either or, but if like a million people had just a rainbow flag on their Twitter account, but didn't do much organizing outside of Twitter. Yes. And I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not good, like have a rainbow flag, cool, that's nice. But like, should, it shouldn't be the last, it shouldn't be the, and again, ableism questions notwithstanding, not everyone can do this specific thing. I'm saying there is a, there is a percentage of the population that can, and that mm. isn't because it's being kind of replaced by this other form of quote unquote activism that yes. I don't think is as effective. And ranting about them, like there is an online, you know, uh, anti-fascist, for example, uh, naming, identifying neo-Nazis who wanted to be an anonymous. That's part of the fight against neo-Nazis. But it's not the only thing, right? Like there, there has to be a way of like saying, well, this community is Nazi free. If you're a Nazi, you're just not welcome. You cannot enter this community. And if you do, you can only do so by not being a Nazi. <laughs> you can only do so by just being yourself, essentially. But if you're trying to come as a Nazi or as a fascist and whatnot, and with your Nazi or fascist friends, you will meet some resistance. And that the fact that there is just that kind of a um, space, physical space, where you know this is a safe space for people who are queer, minorities, and so on and so forth, is so much more valuable, and not just valuable, it's so much more uh, useful in the fight against uh, fascism and far right and all of that stuff than if it was mostly or only on social media. So sure, have social, look, whatever. People, there are so many different ways of doing interesting things that I, I don't have all of the answers, right? My concern is more just like, if it is a thing that you need to do, sure, just please don't make it the only thing. Like if you're a journalist, have a website. Like just please have a website. I keep on telling this to everyone, have a whatever, first name, last name, dot com. And just mm. archive things there. Just whatever you're already doing elsewhere, copy paste it there. Because when that other thing collapses, which is gonna happen, everything, nothing is permanent, you need one place that you can actually rely on as for as long as your career lasts at the very least. So that, that would be my kind of pitch for everyone, including Megaphone, including all of those activist uh, networks and platforms and whatnot that I, I love and I share and I support. Please have more than one thing you depend on. Like have something else that you can rely on if this main thing doesn't succeed. And I will end on this because it frustrates me a lot to see so many activist groups, for example, only interact with one another on Instagram. Like just share each other's number, add the add, add, talk to each other on Signal. And at least, you know, if something happens on Instagram, you have Signal. Just as simple as that, something as simple as that can really make a huge difference in terms of efficiency, in terms of um, activism, in terms of actually being able to know what to do, when to do, and so on. And I'll, I'll, this is my TED talk. Thank you for listening. No, that, that's that's amazing. I literally, the notes, okay, I've been scribbling and sharing different things. <laughs> and one of them, like the online should supplement real life. What is the work you're doing in real life? And I wrote down joy, activism. You look at pride, you know, part of activism is actually joy and happiness. So we have a little like group. It's a bunch of friends. We go like dancing to like queer nights together. That's our little group of like, that's our kind of little gang. We have, we have our activism group and we turn that into real life. We see each other, we meet up. And even the act of like getting out there, obviously either virtually or 
Yeah, getting connecting with people of a not even a like mind, but connecting with people of good faith, be they conservative, be they progressive, but people that fundamentally believe in the rule of law, who fundamentally believe in the value of democracy. I was scribbling down so many ideas and this conversation, this podcast has been amazing because it's actually catalyzed a whole new way of conceiving how I'm going to spend the next few months. You know, those face-to-face conversations, those meetups, following up with friends, expanding networks, connecting, getting personal phone numbers, archiving. Honestly, the last five, 10 minutes of this conversation has blown my tiny mind. Literally, I'll scribble down, okay, so monthly lunches in Berlin, um, more school visits, What's the work I'm doing in real life? What am I doing to encourage joy in my community? What am I doing to build, develop, support activism? One thing I've started doing as well, this is not like trying to praise myself. It's just a way of trying to galvanize work as I do it. So I I got offered a piece of work recently. And for the first time ever, because I'm earning a bit better now, there was a time when I was flat broke, but times are thankfully better. I'm not loaded by any means, but I'm doing better. I'm more comfortable now. One thing I've started doing, for example, is when I speak at certain places, I ask for a speaker's fee and I ask that percentage of that fee is given to a particular NGO. Um, The most recent one is International Women's Space. It's an incredible NGO of migrant women based in Germany, refugee women who advocate for the rights of migrants and other people, but primarily migrants' rights. And what I do is I basically get my fee and I say, okay, here's my fee. And also here's another fee I want you to give to them. And what I'm trying to do there is create a direct relationship between the organization I'm speaking with and the refugee organization. So then they can be like, oh, so-and-so is our grantee. And that feels like something I can do is activism while I'm earning. So I think to myself, well, if I like get paid 500 for a job and their top budget is 500, I'll be like, okay, you can pay me 500. And also this is 250, which is not for me, it's for someone else. And they go, well, actually, because they... People can't really say no to that because they're thinking, okay, our top limit is 500. We can't really say no to it, like a charity that's like doing really good work. So I'll just add on the 250 and then everyone's a winner. So even as you were speaking, I was thinking, how am I going to do work out in the world from tomorrow, for example, let's say my next speaking engagement. And as we're talking, I'm thinking, I'm negotiating right now. And this is all prompted by what you've just said, Jerry. My next speaking engagement in real life is going to be somewhere in the UK. Because of this conversation, I'm now definitely going to ask for an extra 50% on top for that NGO I just mentioned, because that's the activism I can do while my my life is in progress. That's the work. That's the way that I can actually catalyze all of this, this conversation about online supplementing real life. How can I, as I'm out in the real world, try and create some positive change while earning money? And I, I'm just throwing this out there because this is literally something you prompted in the last 10 minutes, like with your respective TED Talks. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for the inspiration is what I'm saying. This is really thank inspiring. You, and interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Justin, your final thoughts on the matter since we're, we have to sort of slowly wrap up. Usually I do book, I ask book X and whatnot. If you have one, go for it. Otherwise it's fine. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that I think, I think Musa's strategy is, is something we should all think more to do. Um, you know, really, really engage in how we can connect more. So I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot as well. Um, I guess I'll say that uh, if any listeners are in Paris or or in Beirut, which is a place I spend a lot of time, um, feel free to reach out and I'd you know love to connect as well and keep building those communities and networks. Um, book recommendation caught me off guard, so I'm going to let Musa go and let me think for a sec. I'll come back to it. 
Oh, book recommendations. Okay, I just uh, read um, Ursula Le, Le Guin. Le Guin, how do I pronounce that? Ursula Le, Le Guin, Guin yeah. Uh, yeah, The Carabag Theory of Fiction, which is fascinating. Very short essay. Um, and it's basically about how so much, of the, so many of the stories we tell are about the hero going and conquering and overwhelming through might, normally the male hero. Um, and what Le Guin talks about is the carryback theory of fiction, which is actually about history is about the, the society that interests her. It's a society where we are carriers, we're bearers of stories. And I, I love that idea, the idea that we are carrying community within us, both the community that we have, the friendships that we have, the community we are still to have, the future communities we're yet to build, and the communities that came before us. And I thought there was something really exciting about that notion of we're all just contributing, we're all just carrying these stories, these narratives of progress, the importance of the rule of law, of democracy, of civil society, and treating each other with with care and compassion. We're just carrying all of that. And I thought that's a really beautiful thing that I read as a sentiment from Le Guin. It's a short essay, but yeah, The Carrybag Theory of Fiction, if you get a chance to read that, please check it out because it really inspired me this week. Listeners, Justin is, go, is on his way to get a book. Sorry, I just ran to double check the the, um, the book title so I didn't I didn't <laughs> make it say the wrong thing. Um, I just finished a series of short, short stories by a Catalan um, author, uh, called Bel Olid, and uh, it's called Wilder Winds, which uh, had a deep impact on me because they write about uh, it's a very it's a series of different short stories, but talks about various vulnerable people. And I think the one that stuck out to me the most was about a woman who comes home uh, kind of covered in in blood, not her own blood, blood she's caused, um, and puts down a gun. And I won't spoil it, but um, it. it, it it was really powerful in, in thinking of the way of, um, you know, what led her to do the things that she did. Um, even if we don't like this sort of violence oftentimes. Um, but the, the, I felt, I found it thought provoking and it touches on a lot of things, um, related to our modern world. Um, definitely vulnerable people, asylum seekers, refugees are included in some of these stories. Um, it has a pretty global outlook as well. Um, to be honest with you, yeah, I mean, I, this this was a wonderful read, so I'd recommend it. I was trying to think of something maybe that would touch more on community, um, but nothing came to mind. I did also maybe briefly want to speak about The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, um, which was, I don't know if you guys have read this one, mm. um, but it just speaks about kind of moving to a new city and the loneliness one feels. And she has moments where she talks about scrolling through social media and how that kind of compounds that loneliness. So if anyone's ever been in a new place and had that feeling of just kind of being um, alone, it, I think it's a, it's a great one as well. Wonderful. Awesome. Uh, the book I was I would recommend quickly is Entangled Life by, I think, Martin Mer Merlin, Merlin Sheldrick. I'm just Googled Entangled Life and it's on Fungi mm -hmm. and it's... Um, it's one of those books that after reading it, and it's probably going to take you a bit of time to read it just because it's, if you don't know anything about fungi and mushrooms and whatnot, it's, it's a lot of information to take in, but it will probably, if it's not too uh, optimistic to say, like it will probably change the way, the way you think about humans as well. There is, there is an argument to be made that we are more fungus like as a species, fungi like then uh in the sense that we are we we strive within networks within those uh rhizomatic whatever i don't know how to spell this how to pronounce this rhizomatic uh networks 
than we are to, let's say, a lion or, or whatnot. And there, there is a very fascinating way in which it's argued in this book, not explicitly so, but looking at how mushrooms themselves, not mushrooms, actually fungi, because mushrooms are different, fungi act as an intelligence without having a central nervous system is fascinating. And there is like a lot of logic as to, you can, you can explain that through logic or to a certain mm. extent anyway. And the other stuff that we still can't explain in any case is fascinating to explore. And I actually think it can be very useful for activists for that matter, or people who are activist minded, whatever those terms are, to, to learn more about fungi, because we literally cannot exist without them. And nothing can, like nothing, nothing, not a single thing we know of can exist without fungi. From vegetables to humans to anything cannot exist without fung fungi. They're so fundamental to how we exist as human beings and as beings in general, and even non-beings, because they can, you know, whatever. I'll get into this at some point. I'll do an episode at some point on this more, more specifically, but I, I highly recommend that book. Uh, there's a good audiobook version as well for those who prefer audiobooks. And I'm, I'm reading it super slowly, uh, like a chapter every week or so, because there's a lot to take in. Um, anyway, on that uh, happy fungi note, do you guys know about the, the, the fungi joke? No, I what's that? Oh, no, no. I, could, I, I think I've already got a vision of it. Go on. So yeah, Wait, so why, why, why did the mushroom oh, no. go to the party? Because he was a fun guy. <laughs> I know I could see it. I was like, no, Jerry, no, we've done so well. I love we've done that so joke. Well. Oh, no. <laughs> we'd got so far without a dad joke. We hey, speak, so speaking of building community, uh, this is oh, some, something God. that listeners can actually do. Wherever you uh, go, if you want to break the ice, make that joke. And if you see people saying like, oh my God, and then start giggling, that person is a friend. Those so, are your trust people. Me, yeah, exactly. you know, those, those are your, are your people. people. <laughs> you know, you know how online my brain is. Is that I want to respond with a GIF right now? <laughs> <laughs> is, is it is in Captain Captain Picard uh, doing the like the what you call it? like uh, ah what's the, the fucking word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, thank oh, you. No, yeah. That one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks uh, a lot for this. What an absolute pleasure. Okay. This was honestly, this was always as as always. It was inspiring. It was empowering, and it was a catalyst for having Same to go here. out and live. So yeah. thank you. Thank you, everyone. And I hope everyone listening, uh, I hope those listening have derived the same benefit. Can I say as well, I am, um, like to say, I, I continue my record setting pace appearing on this podcast. <laughs> yes, you do. You do. Yeah, yeah you do. We're, we're waiting on jackets, Joey. We're waiting on jackets, huh? You have to, you have to do some, you have to be better, Justin. You have to work, kind of work it, work it, be, you know, be this is influence my, something. This is my, this is my third. This is my third one. I'm, I'm waiting. I like, I want the merch. I need like, can we get like fire these, fire these times jackets would be absolute yeah. flames, literally. <laughs> I mean, even, even tees at this point, you know, <laughs> I would, I would, I would, I would definitely rock a fire these times tee for yeah. sure. Anyway, mm -hmm. listen, sorry. I better. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Bounce, but yeah, great to Take see care. you. Right. Thanks, Absolute guys. Pleasure. Okay. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayu. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.